Section one of A Lear of the Steps, etc. by Ivan Turgenev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Lear of the Steps. We were a party of six, gathered together one winter evening at the house of an old college friend. The conversation turned on Shakespeare, on his types, and how profoundly and truly they were taken from the very heart of humanity. We admired particularly their truth to life, their actuality. Each of us spoke of the Hamlets, the Othellos, the Falstaffs, even the Richard the Thirds and Macbeths, the two last only potentially, it is true, resembling their prototypes, whom he had happened to come across. "'And I, gentlemen,' cried our host, a man well past middle age, used to know a King Lear. "'How is that?' we questioned him. "'Oh, would you like me to tell you about him?' "'Please do.' And our friend promptly began his narrative. Part One. All my childhood, he began, and early youth, up to the age of fifteen, I spent in the country, on the estate of my mother, a wealthy landowner in X province. Almost the most vivid impression that has remained in my memory of that far-off time is the figure of our nearest neighbour, Martin Petrovich Harlov. Indeed, it would be difficult for such an impression to be obliterated. I never in my life afterwards met anything in the least like Harlov. Picture to yourselves a man of gigantic stature. On his huge carcass was set, a little askew, and without the least trace of a neck, a prodigious head. A perfect haystack of tangled yellowish-gray hair stood up all over it, growing almost down to the bushy eyebrows. On the broad expanse of his purple face, that looked as though it had been peeled, there protruded a sturdy knobby nose. Diminutive little blue eyes stared out haughtily, and a mouth gaped open that was diminutive too, but crooked, chapped, and of the same colour as the rest of the face. The voice that proceeded from this mouth, though hoarse, was exceedingly strong and resonant. Its sound recalled the clank of iron bars, carried in a cart over a badly paved road. And when Harlov spoke, it was as though someone were shouting in a high wind across a wide ravine. It was difficult to tell just what Harlov's face expressed. It was such an expanse. One felt one could hardly take it all in at one glance. But it was not disagreeable. A certain grandeur indeed could be discerned in it, only it was exceedingly astounding and unusual. And what hands he had! Positive cushions! What fingers! What feet! I remember I could never gaze without a certain respectful awe at the four-foot span of Martin Petrovitch's back, at his shoulders, like millstones. But what especially struck me was his ears! They were just like great twists of bread, full of bends and curves. His cheeks seemed to support them on both sides. Martin Petrovitch used to wear, winter and summer alike, a Cossack dress of green cloth, girt about with a small Cherkess strap, and tarred boots. I never saw a cravat on him, and, indeed, what could he have tied a cravat around? He breathed slowly and heavily, like a bull, but walked without a sound. One might have imagined that having got into a room he was in constant fear of upsetting and overturning everything, and so moved cautiously from place to place, sideways for the most part, as though slinking by. 
He was possessed of a strength truly Herculean, and in consequence enjoyed great renown in the neighbourhood. Our common people retain to this day their reverence for titanic heroes. Legends were invented about him. They used to recount that he had one day met a bear in the forest, and had almost vanquished him. That having once caught a thief in his bee-house, he had flung him, horse and cart and all, over the hedge, and so on. Harloff himself never boasted of his strength. "'If my right hand is blessed,' he used to say, "'so it is God's will it should be.' He was proud, only he did not take pride in his strength, but in his rank, his descent, his common sense. "'Our families descended from the Swede Harlus,' he used to maintain. "'In the princely reign of Ivan Vasilievich, the Dark—fancy how long ago—he came to Russia, and that Swede Harlus did not wish to be a Finnish count, but he wished to be a Russian nobleman, and he was inscribed in the Golden Book. It's from him we Harlovs have sprung, and by the same token all of us Harlovs are born flaxen-haired, with light eyes and clean faces, because we're children of the snow. But, Martin Petrovitch, I once tried to object, there never was an Ivan Vasilievich the Dark. Then was an Ivan Vasilievich the Terrible. The Dark was the name given to the great prince Vasily Vasilievich. "'What nonsense will you talk next?' Harlov answered serenely. "'Since I say so, so it was.' One day my mother took it into her head to commend him to his face for his really remarkable incorruptibility. "'Ah, Natalia Nikolaevna,' he protested almost angrily, "'what a thing to praise me for, really!' We gentlefolk can't be otherwise, so that no churl, no low-born servile creature dare even imagine evil of us. I am a Harlov. My family has come down from—here he pointed up somewhere very high aloft in the ceiling—and me not be honest. How is it possible? Another time a high official, who had come into the neighbourhood and was staying with my mother, fancied he could make fun of Martin Petrovitch. The latter had again referred to the Swede Harless, who came to Russia. In the days of King Solomon? The official interrupted. No, not of King Solomon, but of the great Prince Ivan Vasilievich, the Dark. But I imagine, the official pursued, that your family is much more ancient, and goes back to antediluvian days, when there were still mastodons and megatheriums about. These scientific names were absolutely meaningless to Martin Petrovitch, but he realized that the dignitary was laughing at him. "'Maybe so,' he boomed. "'Our family is, no doubt, very ancient. In those days when my ancestor was in Moscow, they do say there was as great a fool as Your Excellency living there. Such fools are not seen twice in a thousand years.' The high official was in a furious rage while Harlov threw his head back, stuck out his chin, snorted and disappeared. Two days later he came in again. My mother began reproaching him. "'It's a lesson for him, ma'am,' interposed Harlov, "'not to fly off without knowing what he's about, to find out whom he has to deal with first. He's young yet, he must be taught.' The dignitary was almost of the same age as Harlov but this titan was in the habit of regarding everyone as not fully grown up. 
He had the greatest confidence in himself, and was afraid of absolutely no one. "'Can they do anything to me?' "'Where on earth is the man that can?' he would ask, and suddenly he would go off into a short but deafening guffaw. Part Two. My mother was exceedingly particular in her choice of acquaintances, but she made Harlov welcome with special cordiality, and allowed him many privileges. Twenty-five years before he had saved her life by holding up her carriage on the edge of a deep precipice, down which the horses had already fallen. The traces and straps of the harness broke, but Martin Petrovitch did not let go his hold of the wheel he had grasped, though the blood spurted out under his nails. My mother had arranged his marriage. She chose for his wife an orphan girl of seventeen, who had been brought up in her house. He was over forty at the time. Martin Petrovitch's wife was a frail creature. They said he carried her into his house in the palms of his hands, and she did not live long with him. She bore him two daughters, however. After her death my mother continued her good offices to Martin Petrovitch. She placed his elder daughter in the district school, and afterwards found her a husband, and already had another in her eye for the second. Harlov was a fairly good manager. He had a little estate of nearly eight hundred acres, and had built on to his place a little, and the way the peasants obeyed him is indescribable. Owing to his stoutness, Harlov scarcely ever went anywhere on foot. The earth did not bear him. He used to go everywhere in a low racing droshky, himself driving a raw-boned mare, thirty years old, with a scar on her shoulder, from a wound which she had received in the Battle of Borodino, under the quartermaster of a cavalry regiment. This mare was always somehow lame in all four legs. She could not go at a walking pace, but could only change from a trot to a canter. She used to eat mugwort and wormwood along the hedges, which I have never noticed any other horse do. I remember I always used to wonder how such a broken-down nag could draw such a fearful weight. I won't venture to repeat how many hundredweight were attributed to our neighbour. In the droshky, behind Martin Petrovitch's back, perched his swarthy page, Maximka. With his face and whole person squeezed close up to his master, and his bare feet propped on the hind axle of the droshky, he looked like a little leaf or worm which had clung by chance to the gigantic carcass before him. This same page-boy used once a week to shave Martin Petrovitch. He used, so they say, to stand on a table to perform this operation. Some jocose persons averred that he had to run round his master's chin. Harlov did not like staying long at home, and so one might often see him driving about in his invariable equipage, with the reins in one hand, the other he held smartly on his knee, with the elbow crooked upwards, with a diminutive old cap on the very top of his head. He looked boldly about him with his little bear-like eyes, shouted in a voice of thunder to all the peasants, artisans, and tradespeople he met. Priests he greatly disliked, and he would send vigorous abjurations after them when he met them. One day, on overtaking me, I was out for a stroll with my gun. He hallooed at a hare that lay near the road in such a way that I could not get the roar and ring of it out of my ears all day. Part Three. 
My mother, as I have already stated, made Martin Petrovitch very welcome. She knew what a profound respect he entertained for her person. She is a real gentlewoman, one of our sort, was the way he used to refer to her. He used to style her his benefactress, while she saw in him a devoted giant, who would not have hesitated to face a whole mob of peasants in defence of her. And although no one foresaw the barest possibility of such a contingency, still, to my mother's notions, in the absence of a husband, she had early been left a widow, such a champion as Martin Petrovitch was not to be despised. And, besides, he was a man of upright character, who curried favour with no one, never borrowed money or drank spirits. And no fool either, though he had received no sort of education. My mother trusted Martin Petrovitch. When she took it into her head to make her will, she asked him to witness it, and he drove home expressly to fetch his round iron-rimmed spectacles, without which he could not write. And with spectacles on nose, he succeeded, in a quarter of an hour, with many gasps and groans and great effort, in inscribing his Christian name, father's name, and surname, and his rank and designation, tracing enormous quadrangular letters with tails and flourishes. Having completed this task, he declared he was tired out, and that writing for him was as hard work as catching fleas. Yes, my mother had a respect for him. He was not, however, admitted beyond the dining-room in our house. He carried a very strong odour about him. There was a smell of earth, of decaying forest, of marsh-mud about him. "'He's a forest demon,' my old nurse would declare. At dinner, a special table used to be laid apart in a corner for Martin Petrovitch, and he was not offended at that. He knew other people were ill at ease sitting beside him, and he too had greater freedom in eating. And he did eat too, as no one, I imagine, has eaten since the days of Polyphemus. At the very beginning of dinner, by way of a precautionary measure, they always served him a pot of some four pounds of porridge. "'Else you'd eat me out of house and home,' my mother used to say. "'That I should, ma'am,' Martin Petrovitch would respond, grinning. My mother liked to hear his reflections on any topic connected with the land, but she could not support the sound of his voice for long together. "'What's the meaning of it, my good sir?' she would exclaim. "'You might take something to cure yourself of it, really. You simply deafen me. Such a trumpet-blast!' "'Natalia Nikolaevna, benefactress,' Martin Petrovitch would rejoin, as a rule. "'I'm not responsible for my throat. And what medicine could have any effect on me? Kindly tell me that. I'd better hold my tongue for a bit.' In reality, I imagine, no medicine could have affected Martin Petrovitch. He was never ill. He was not good at telling stories, and did not care for it. "'Much talking gives me asthma,' he used to remark reproachfully. It was only when one got him on to the year 1812. He had served in the militia, and had received a bronze medal, which he used to wear on festive occasions attached to a Vladimir ribbon when one questioned him about the French, that he would relate some few anecdotes. He used, however, to maintain stoutly, all the while, that there never had been any Frenchmen, real ones, in Russia, only some poor marauders, who had straggled over from hunger, 
and that he had given many a good drubbing to such rabble in the forests. End of section one.